0: Well, happy Mother's Day and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we're going to pull together the three primary facts of the gospel as determined by the very first witnesses who have set in motion for the church an obedience to Jesus' command to go and make disciples. We will see at the very heart of the gospel message is a simple truth that has been passed down. Just like the greatest lessons that we learned from our own mothers have been passed down from generation to generation, but here to generations of Christians. And it's the good news that Jesus died for our sins. Thanks for joining us as we seek to grow in the practice and the discipline of evangelism. Moms are a kind of spiritual gardener. In their kids' lives, They are always planting seeds of truth in their lives. I want to see if I can get a little interaction with the church this morning, if you'd be willing to share something that you learned from your mom. While you're thinking of that, I'll just share a few of them. My mom, my mom would always tell me to eat my vegetables, uh, Don't leave the toilet seat up, uh, turn the lights off, pick up your underwear. Now, that might seem like they're obvious things, but let me tell you, you can ask my wife. I always eat my vegetables. She never picks up on your word. Lights are always off. (laughs) Toilet seats always put down. You know what that's called? That's called fruit from them seeds right there. (laughs) How about you? What what, what are some of those lessons you've learned? Olivia, what have you learned from your mom? Stop falling in the river and stop bringing home turtles. Okay. (laughs) Very good, Shannon. No bringing home turtles. Go ahead, life. That was Joe's character. Wow, that's a big one. Uh, If you couldn't hear him, he said, how to be a good judge of character. It's one of the best things that a mom can pass on. Love Jesus and remember forgiveness. Mm, I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding as they heard you say that. She said, love Jesus and remember forgiveness. Someone from the back. Anybody, what would you learn from your mom? Bruce, you got your hand up? Be compassionate. Yeah, Bruce said, be compassionate at all times. That's excellent. Chip. Finish your food. I heard you back there. That's right. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, Ted. My mom said I've been praying for you for 50 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That, that is, doesn't, isn't that impactful? If you couldn't hear him, he said, Mom has been praying for Ted for 50 years. What a heart of a mother, right? One more. Anybody else? Yeah. Go ahead, Grace. Be and help to be humble and to help others. You, you know, I, I know that we could spend the whole morning here just talking about all those seeds. That's what those are, you understand. Those are seeds that are planted in the hearts of children. And one of the characteristics of mothers is that they don't simply just do it to the kids who listen. Because do kids always listen? No. no. And, and, and if, if a mom has a child who's choosing not to obey, she doesn't stop planting seeds. She, she gets out the plow and she goes to work, right? She continues. She continues. <laughs> To remind them of what's right, even if and especially when they are in trouble. I have just a little picture up here when we were at the Grand Canyon and the mom said, don't go too close to the edge. Now, I just have to show you the face here. Now, that's the face of a mother (laughs) who knew that uh, her kids might be in trouble. We, we, are, we are in a series on evangelism, and, and the focus for today is to see how the same way that God has given us mothers who continue to plant seeds, so that that which they are saying become uh, habits in our lives, they become internalized in our hearts such that they bear fruit, that that's something that God does as well and models so that we can learn to do that within the discipline of evangelism. Evangelism is all about working the soil, watering the plants, planting seeds, pruning branches. It's something that you alone can't do, but we need the entire church to do. I wanted to put a little chart up here uh, so that we can visualize biblical evangelism. Um, I'm using the term symphonic to show that everybody has a role to play just like in a symphony. Sometimes one instrument is louder than another, but everybody has a role to play. And so as we are undergoing to learn and to equip ourselves and train ourselves how to do evangelism, I want you to think of it like military rifleman training, basic training of all of the variety of ways in which a military can be structured. One thing everybody has in common is they all know how to shoot the gun, how to uh, be aware of the dangers. That's something that the entire church needs to do as well. Maybe another metaphor that might work for you is the concept of first aid. Doesn't everybody know the basics of first aid? Do you, know you know how to put a Band-Aid on? Right? Do you, you know how to cover a scratch? I'll tell you this, moms do. And we need to learn. We need to learn as well when it comes to Christianity that there are basic understandings that we all need to practice. And whether or not you are the gung-ho evangelist preaching on the corner, or if you're the person who I'm never going to stand up and speak in front of a microphone ever. right? Wherever you fall on that spectrum... The symphony of the church needs to work together so that we all are equipped with the gospel. There's three categories when it comes to evangelism that also make it symphonic. The first we spent time on last year. Uh, I I told you back then it was a full year ago that this is a two-part series. Uh, We spent something like 16 weeks on doing good We could have spent the entire year on it because it is throughout the scriptures, the strategy by which God knows you will gain an audience with your neighbor. If you love them, if you serve them, and if they can see the good works that flow from your life, this is an essential within evangelism. Let me simply put it to you this way. If you only share the message of the gospel, but there is no demonstration of the transforming work of that gospel in your life, you're a hypocrite. And the church today, unfortunately, is filled with hypocrisy that we say one thing on a Sunday, but then we don't display the love of Jesus on Monday. So this I wanted to begin with. We spent it. Uh, Heavy time on it last year. We're not going to talk about this this morning, but I want to show you this is an essential component of the gospel without which you lose the effectiveness of how God wants us to understand evangelism. The second has to do with where we've been. Now, we covered this a little bit last year as well in a series called Show and Tell, but it is the gospel. We've looked at it every Sunday. In fact, just as a point of review, uh, the two components that we are learning that come from the scriptures are number one, Jesus is Lord, and number two, Jesus is alive. The resurrection, he's raised from the dead. There are a lot of books that you can read. There are a lot of pastors who will give you strategies. I want to make it clear, that's not what we're doing in this series. We're not talking about methods of evangelism. I'm not going to teach you the Romans road, or the four spiritual laws, or hand out a bunch of tracts that you can give to people. We're not looking at methodology. Instead, we are looking at the essentials of evangelism. What are those necessary components, not manufactured by today's Christian culture offered to us, but what are those essentials that come from God's word? And we've covered these two already. I hope you're locking them in. We're going to cover the the third and the final one today, which can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, Our plan for this morning is to extraordinarily quickly. (laughs) uh, We're going to read this passage uh, and work through some observations. I I do want to highlight as you're turning there. This may be the most important verse in the entire New Testament. That is a really bold statement to make. Um, But I think there's good reason why you could make an argument that the passage for this morning may in fact be the number one most important verse in the whole New Testament. Additionally, this sermon is going to be offensive. And this is part of the design. You and I need to learn that truth is by virtue exclusive. That's why it's called truth. And too often in our world when it comes to sharing the gospel, too many Christians have a greater fear of man than they have a fear of God. And because of that, they're afraid to tell the truth. And that's what we're going to see today. My hope is that as we study this this morning, you will be able to add the third component to your understanding of the gospel. Not only is Jesus Lord ruling and reigning right now in heaven and in my heart, not only is he alive and the grave is empty, the tomb is empty, but that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's what we're going to look at. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 1 and we'll we'll land in verse 3. Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel... You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, there's so much, so much that can be said. And there's, this isn't the full end of the story, but it does contain for us the final precious nugget of truth that we must have an understanding of when it comes to sharing the good news of the gospel. So a few observations from this passage. Um, the gospel is a timeless truth. Paul says here that he received it and he passed it on. This is a tradition that has been entrusted to Christians. You can think of uh, something in your family that's been passed down. Do you have, any, have anything from grandma? Do you, do you have a, a, maybe a, a, a piece of china or a, a maybe a little figurine or anything that just for you reminds you of the loved one? Something maybe that you treasure, something that you hope one day to pass down as well. I believe that every one of us can think of something like that here today. Well, what do you do with that object? Does it go in the junk drawer? Probably not. It's a timeless truth that is treasured. And that's exactly what the gospel is. The very first observation that we see is Paul saying, I received this as precious, and this I pass on to you. Second thing I want you to see is that the gospel must be received unchanged. So he says that he he passed it on. He doesn't say that he adapted it. He didn't say that he restructured it for today's audience. He didn't say that he soft-pedaled it so as he will not offend anybody. Nope, that's not how it works. The gospel must be received unchanged, unthwarted, unadjusted by any of our efforts. Um, my, my wife has a recipe for a cheesecake that she got from her mom. And one time I made the dumb idea of suggesting how she could change it. <laughs> That's not what you do with recipes that are passed down, right? The same is true with the good news of Jesus Christ. You have, you have received it as a timeless truth and it needs to be passed on as it is without diluting it. Without watering it down so that it might be more easily received. In fact, one of the ways, hear me loud and clear on this. One of the ways in which God uses to awaken the sinner is with the pain of offense. And if we are so quick to try to make it so that it's more tolerable for people, you may accidentally be removing the exact agent that God intends to awaken them from their stupor and slumber of self-rule and self-love. Number three, the gospel is of first importance. If you look with me again in the text, he said, I passed it on to you as of first importance. This means this comes before anything else. This is the seat belt on before the car pulls out. Right? This is whatever version of order that we best understand that God says this ahead of everything. And the reason is because the good news of the gospel is not trying to make bad men better. The gospel is trying to make dead men come to life. And so there's a lot of information in the Bible about how the good news of the gospel works its way out to make you more like Christ. But you don't begin there. You don't start there. You need to start instead with the recognition of the danger of... The danger that we are in by being in our sins here it is the gospel is Christ died for our sins he says that which I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins now I want to look at these in uh, in order one by one again very quickly um, Christ is uh, the word used to refer to the one who God has anointed. This is God's chosen one. This is God's answer for sin. His name is Jesus. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from government. It doesn't come from family heritage. Christ is the agent of our salvation. Secondly, he died. Uh, Death is the penalty for sin. Romans 6 teaches us this. The wages of sin is death. And so here we have God's word echoed all the way from Eden. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God says, any, any fruit, any tree, all of this is for you except the one here in the middle. For the day that you eat of it, you will what? Die. You will die. And you will die not because the fruit's got some poison in it or because it's unhealthy. You will die because you will now be separated from God. For all eternity, your spirit will die in that moment and there will now be a breach in your fellowship because you have decided, I know better than God. And death is that penalty. Christ took that penalty for sin. This next preposition is really easy for us to overlook. I want to submit to you this might be the most important word in the entirety of that short phrase. Christ died for I don't want to lose you on this. Let me get slightly technical with you. Paul could have used a different preposition. The preposition that he chooses to use here in Greek means specifically that Jesus is a substitution for you. It should have been you to receive the penalty. It should have been you to be under God's wrath, but somebody else did it for, meaning in your place for you, it's the marker of substitutionary atonement. I want to see how I want to show you how this little Greek word gets repeated through the New Testament. Galatians three, Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, meaning in Amen. our place. For it's written, "Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree." First Timothy two five and six. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. In place of, instead of, as a substitute for all people, and one last one, Second Corinthians five twenty one: God made him who had no sin to be sin in our place. Primarily here, meaning a sin offering in our place. That's what the word for. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Greek scholar Dan Wallace says this in his book Exegetical Syntax of the New Testament. It's our conviction that who pair that is the that's the preposition is naturally suited to the meaning of substitution and is in fact used in several passages dealing with the nature of Christ's atonement. This from philosopher William Lane Craig in his book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. He says, the doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us. The death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. Christ voluntarily took upon himself the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins. One last verse. You heard it already from Wendy this morning. In fact, this might be the best of all. The prophecy. Because you remember what Paul says? This is true in accordance with the scriptures. Here's the scripture he was talking about. Isaiah 53. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered and punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity, iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are all healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, anybody who wants to look at this a little bit further, Wednesday morning Bible study. I'd love to show you how this little passage right here is the evangelistic text. For the very first time, the gospel goes outside of the Jews. It's in Acts chapter 8 with Philip uh, and the um, uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, It's this passage. It's this one right here that causes him to say, is he talking about himself? Is Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else? And it becomes the evangelistic springboard by which that man comes to faith. Uh, Our is the representational identification as being vicarious. It's also personal. Christ died for whose fault? It wasn't his. It was us. And it shows the identifying marker that he's done it in your place for you. It also means that Jesus has to be just like you and I. This passage from Hebrews chapter 2 Since the children have flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. One last one, sins. And I have, to, I, have to, I have to sit on this one for a minute. Now, some of you may be looking at the clock. <laughs> Look, it's, the, it's life. This is the way it goes. Moms, you have to forgive me. We're, we're going to go just a little bit past 11 on this. But this is the point at which evangelism becomes offensive. Because it's really easy for us to say, Jesus is alive, right? To elevate Jesus isn't hard. To say Jesus is Lord, to elevate Jesus is not hard. But you know what people don't want to hear? Mm -hmm. You are a sinner. Mm -hmm. And do you know what sin is? It's breaking the law. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but has anyone ever broken the law? (laughs) Here's something awful. If you ever break the law, you are now living in a place of future judgment. That's what it means to break the law. And this is not a passage that's just looking for you to have a better life. This part of the gospel is a courtroom scene whereby one day the judge of heaven and earth will come and will pass the sentence for lawbreakers. And that's what sin is. And so do you know what this means? This means that without Jesus, you're in big trouble, man. You are in a really bad spot right now. Because the cops are going to come someday, Jesus' holy angels, to harvest from the earth those who will enter into either eternity with God or eternity without God. And it's all because you have broken the law of God. This passage from 1 John, he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. I believe at this point, we need to firmly understand that this is the place where modeling of moms who plant seeds for us is the same thing that God does. Because it's only with an understanding of the bad news that you're in trouble that suddenly the gospel becomes good news. Without ever hearing that there is a penalty due to the laws that you've broken, you will never find a need for a savior. One last observation, and then we're going to wrap it up. The gospel is an objective truth. This doesn't come from one single church tradition. This doesn't come from you. Again, Paul says he has learned this as it was passed on in accordance with the scriptures. There was one little part that's easy to miss, though, and it came in verse two. If you have your Bible, just look with me there again real quick, because verse two says, by this gospel, you are saved. And then what's that next word? It's a conditional marker. If. If if you hold. Now I see the moms nodding because moms know what that word means, right? If. That means if you don't, they're going to be... Well, I was going to say hell to pay, but that's a little too on the nose, isn't it? That's a little bit too accurate. If, If you don't follow the instructions that are given, if you don't live according to the gospel... The text says, I'm not making this up, the text says, you have believed in vain. In fact, we heard the same message that came this morning from Wendy. Let me just repeat it one more time. If you're scribbling in your margin, you can put back in there Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. It says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in a sight without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue. I think it's a tough thing for some moms. Don't you wish, moms, that you could just have your kids do everything that you say? And, and instead of having to just leave them up to their own decisions, that sometimes they got to learn the hard way? Boy, if only they would just obey at the first time we have this problem in our home. My, my dear wife is always planting seeds over and over, the same seeds. I, I say it one time after that, I'm gone. But she'll remind them again and again and again. And that's just like the character of God, isn't it? We're going to wrap up this morning. If you'll turn with me to one passage in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives a parable of a farmer. A parable of a farmer. In Matthew chapter 13. In verse 3. I'll just wait one second to hear the pages turning. Page 1392 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 3. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell on, along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 and 30 times what was sown. He who has ears let him hear. The disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jump with me to verse 18. Verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who has received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word, understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 what was sown. You could write in the margin one conditional short little word, if. It's the exact same thing that the apostle says. You are saved by this gospel if you hold on to it. Now, what does that mean for us with evangelism? I want to offer you four conclusions as we, as we end. Biblical evangelism means consistency in the message of the gospel. You may notice that you have uh, four different actors in that parable. You have the sower, you have the seed, and you have the soil. It was the same sower for all four soils, right? He, he, he didn't swap out workers. Same farmer in all four. In fact, it was the same seed in all four. It's not like you put good seed here and bad seed there. Same sower, same seed. What was the variable then? It was the soil was the variable. And sometimes you don't know who's going to listen. It's true. You don't know who's going to receive the gospel. But what that means for us is that we must have consistency in the message. You and I need to make sure that we are planting the same seed whenever we encounter whichever field we have. Number two, biblical evangelism means the gospel message is primary. This is critical for us. Please, please, please do not bring somebody to the faith by trying to show them all of the benefits that Jesus will have without first letting them see their sins. You'll only be making dead men look a little bit better. And that's not the gospel. Number three, biblical evangelism means avoiding easy believism. That's a phrase that Paul here is referencing in verse two when he says, if you don't hold to the word that was preached, you have believed in vain. I mean, why even bother at that point? We need to make sure that the message about sin, that God has come in the person of his son to die for your sin. And you are under law because you've broken it. And you need God's grace of the gospel. All of the other messages about the gospel are easy, but it's only the message of sin that then dethrones us from our heart and elevates Jesus. Lastly, biblical evangelism means it means knowing the gospel. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you just come down front and and we're going to say a prayer. Repeat after me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, and I've seen TV preachers do this, you're awesome. You're awesome. I just want to tell you that God loves you just the way you are. That is not the gospel. God does not love you just the way you are. In fact, you are under his wrath because you are saturated in self-rule and sin. And it might offend people. And God knows that because it's those to those he has chosen to send his spirit that they would see their sin and they would turn away from it. And that means you and I need to know what the gospel is. There's a lot of different methods when it comes to sharing it. But three things that we have to lock down. This is my last point for for practical application. I challenge you, practice internalizing the message of the gospel as the very first apostles preached it. The witnesses of Jesus, those who walked and talked with Jesus, they understood these core components. Just like mom used to tell you to pick pick up your dirty clothes, right? And as you grow older, suddenly you now do that naturally. You have to internalize this message of the gospel. Three three ways that we've looked at here. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Number two, Jesus is alive. And number three, Jesus died for our sins. Church, that's the gospel. And God is going to use every single one of us in the unique way he's gifted you. Because you're going to see people I don't see. You're going to have relationships and a particular nuance with your neighbor that the rest of us don't have. But you're never going to get it if you don't practice this. May God help us to do